I think one problem is that there's a vanity to international development. We like feeling that we've got some brilliant idea. We don't like just giving people money. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Rory Stewart, is an author, former diplomat, and politician who served as the United Kingdom's Secretary of State for International Development. He is currently the CEO of Give Directly, an international NGO that specializes in no-strings-attached cash transfers. This includes to people impacted by sudden onset crises and as a tool to provide basic income for people living in extreme poverty. When we caught up, Rory Stewart had just returned from the earthquake-affected areas of southern Turkey, where Give Directly has a program to support small business owners impacted by the disaster. We discuss the value and utility of conditionless cash transfers in emergency situations before transitioning to a longer conversation about the potential role that such cash transfers can play in reducing endemic extreme poverty around the world. As we discuss, this is an empirically effective way to combat extreme poverty but it is not yet widely adopted by major donor governments for reasons he explains. I do encourage people to learn more about the work of Give Directly at givedirectly.org. Now here is my conversation with Rory Stewart, CEO of Give Directly. So I know you were recently in Turkey to support Give Directly's program for victims of the earthquake. Can you walk listeners through that program and how it works? So Give Directly, for listeners who aren't fully aware of us, is a, a nonprofit that specializes in delivering cash, generally to the extreme poor. And we do so because we believe that often the most useful way of assisting somebody is by giving them the freedom to choose what to do with the money rather than giving them an in-kind gift or giving them training to simply free them up and let them make their own choices. And embedded in that, I guess, is an idea of dignity, an idea that the recipient is autonomous, is free 
to make their own choices and decide what their own priorities are. In the case of uh, the earthquake in southern Turkey, and I was there, as you say, last week, you're dealing with a situation which is beyond imagining. 42,000 people were killed in that earthquake, in a staggering number of people, and many of them killed in the first two minutes. And so you're looking not just at a very traumatized community, because of course many people lost friends and relatives, a community that's still very much living in fear because the aftershocks and tremors continue. There was a large five on the scale tremor last Monday. As you can imagine, everybody, when they feel that, think the earthquake's coming again. But it's also the total disruption of an economy and all economic activity. Roads are closed, airports are closed, shops are closed, buildings are abandoned. So Give Directly is particularly working with Syrian refugees in southern Turkey. And these are people who were displaced from their homes in Syria by the war, moved to Turkey, and then found themselves caught up in the earthquake. And in particular, amongst that group, we're targeting people with small micro-businesses, helping them get back on their feet again. What are some of the examples of these micro-businesses that you're supporting? It actually, to be honest, is a range of almost anything. So some of those will be small craft businesses, which is people manufacturing things. So there are some quite skilled craftspeople who can do woodwork, for example, would be an example of a traditional Syrian craft. I also spoke to somebody who was running a small school for giving people English language training. I spoke to a a businessman who was running a a small Italian restaurant. So it, it ranges from manufacturers through to people who are just providing simple things like food on the streets. And how are you supporting them? We do direct cash transfer. And traditionally, in an African context, that means delivering money to people's phones, because in Africa, mobile money is very much the thing. It's a very, very efficient way of getting people's support. If they don't have a phone, we issue them with a phone, and they can then pay for things with their phones. In the case with Syrian refugees in Turkey, we're going to be actually sending it to people's bank accounts, because almost everybody has been included in the financial system there in southern Turkey. So you just get their bank account information, send them money, and that's it. And then we follow up. So we follow up in two ways. One is to find out how people spent the money. And the second is to check that there's not been any fraud. So really, in terms of thinking about cash, it's about working out what's the most efficient, cost-effective way of getting somebody the support, and then learning from how they use that. Because one of the things we've discovered is that cash is extraordinary. It outperforms nutrition programs on nutritional outcomes. It outperforms business training programs on business outcomes. So looking at how people put that money to work is absolutely vital. It's vital for understanding what happened in that particular case, but it's also for making the case in the future for cash. How many people are you seeking to reach with cash transfers in the context of the earthquake in southern Turkey? And how much are you giving them? At the moment, we are looking at transfers of approximately $1,000. And the number of people we can reach depends on how much money we can raise. So it's a pretty simple sum. (laughs) We're currently aiming to raise about a million dollars, which will start a thousand of these small businesses, get them back on their feet again. And we think that will make a real contribution. And it's a real gap within the economy of these towns and cities that have been so wrecked and destroyed. So I know that beyond Turkey, GiveDirectly supports cash transfers to people impacted by other sudden onset humanitarian crises. 
How does this crisis in particular compare to others in terms of how you are organizing your programming? You're absolutely right. We do work in humanitarian contexts. And humanitarian context is, for listeners who don't follow this very much, is very much the big use case for cash at the moment, because people have learned that if you're a refugee or you are in an area affected by famine or a natural disaster, it's absolutely vital to give people flexibility. And the problem with the old way that we used to respond, which is to send people tents, for example, or to send them food, is that often those were not the things that a particular family needed. And therefore they had to sell the bag of maize that was imported from the United States for cash to get the cash to buy what they needed. They might have been given food when they needed a tent or given a tent when they needed food, or they might need medical help, or they might need to get their kids into school. So cash allows people to address their real needs, but it also supports the local market. The disadvantage of growing maize in the United States and shipping it halfway around the world isn't just the incredible costs of moving it. It's also that it means that the local farmers and the local market in that context don't get the chance to develop and grow. What's the difference between southern Turkey and other humanitarian contexts? I think there's two. One is the very particular complex trauma of dealing with refugees who've been driven out of their homes by war, have found themselves in a situation where they're not citizens, and have then been hit by this astonishing traumatizing earthquake. And one of the Syrian refugees said to me that it felt worse than the war, that at least for the war, there was some degree of warning. There was some degree of they could make some sense of why the government was shelling them. But an earthquake is so sudden, so indiscriminate, so astonishingly cruel and unpredictable in its path. So beyond humanitarian emergencies, I know that Give directly runs some universal basic income programs around the world, including in some places beset by extreme poverty. Before we discuss how those programs work, could you kind of briefly make the case for no strings attached cash transfer as an effective anti-poverty tool? I know there's been a number of social science research sort of backing up claims made by groups like Give Directly. Can you walk us through some of that research and what you have found as head of Give Directly in terms of the effectiveness of these programs? I think the first thing to understand is that there is a global shame, a disgrace around the issue of extreme poverty. There were 170 million people living in extreme poverty in Africa in 1980. There are 470 million people living in extreme poverty in Africa today. That's people living on under $2.15 a day. Those are people who cannot meet their most basic needs. We're talking here about people who will struggle to eat one meal a day, who will have no roof on their house, no mattress on their floor, whose children will be unable to get into school, who will have no real savings, assets, or resilience. And it's in that context that you need to think about cash because the world has been struggling for decades to work out what can be done to address extreme poverty. And there has been a revolution, and it's a two-part revolution. One is the development of mobile money in Africa over the last 10 years suddenly means that it's possible to transfer cash directly to people's phones without having to go through governments or headmen or move large amounts of paper cash around in trucks. 
And the second, as you say, is the extraordinary explosion of academic research, which has demonstrated that cash is more effective than almost any other conceivable development intervention on poverty. There have been more than 300 academic studies on cash, and many of these studies are what we call randomized control tests. In other words, they're like a medical trial. You have a control group, and then you have a treatment group. So you would give cash, as it were, to 10,000 people, and then you'd have another randomly selected group of 10,000 people to whom you don't give cash, and then you measure over time what the difference is between the treatment group and the control group, and the results are staggering. We're discovering in some of these studies that there is still a noticeable difference between the group that received $350 12 years ago and a group that didn't receive that money 12 years later. It's extraordinary because the sum of money there is quite small, the enduring impact very large, and you see improvements in people's savings, their incomes, their investments. You see improvement in bone density and stunting. In other words, it's dealing with nutrition. You see the creation of new businesses. You see an increase in educational enrollment. You see an increase in people's acquisition of livestock, you know, cows, repairs to their shelter and their houses. It's extraordinary. And one of the reasons it's so powerful is that it allows every individual house in a community to adjust to what other people are doing, to meet their own particular needs, but also adjust to the surrounding economy. So if you're buying a cow or everyone else in the village has bought a cow, I might set up a shop selling veterinary medicine. Or if cash is coming to the community, and people are getting mobile phones, I might buy solar panels and start using them to charge people's mobile phones, et cetera, et cetera. What we're seeing is extraordinary, complicated multiplier effects, this cash. In a study in Kenya, $1 of cash had $2.50 worth of impact across the entire surrounding economy. And it's also notable that these studies consistently show that giving people no-strings-attached money also does not mean that they will just like blow it on booze and gambling. These are typically like very impactful, as you said, multiplier effects with the negative externalities around them quite limited. Yeah, there's a huge psychological barriers to cash and people hold cash to a much higher bar than they do most other development interventions. People are much more likely to ask, did you waste the cash than they are to ask, did you waste the bicycle I gave you or did you waste the solar panel I gave you? But in fact, the truth is that many of the in-kind gifts, the bicycle solar panel, are wasted. I've seen many, many villages in Afghanistan where solar panels were given and it wasn't properly thought through and they're abandoned and cracked and they're not maintained and nobody's using them. But nobody seems to mind about that. Nobody seems to mind about schools that are built that are never used. But people are very sensitive to the possibility that somebody might use some cash in a way that they don't like. And I think there are two things to say to that. I think one is that the evidence is overwhelming that if you are in extreme poverty, if you're somebody who has been living, as a lady I saw recently in Rwanda was living on only $6 cash a month and otherwise living hand to mouth from what she can gather from neighbors, she's been thinking for 30, 40 years of her life what she would do if she got a bit of money. So she doesn't waste that money. When that money comes in, she immediately fixes her house, buys a small plot of land, gets a cow, gets her grandchildren back into school. It's miraculous. And the efficiency is extraordinary too, because even if there were examples of people making less productive use of their money, the amount that you're saving by not having to pay all the costs of charity workers, trainers, implementers is extraordinary. So again, in the village, if you think what it would cost if you were to 
ask a charity to go into a village and fix all the houses, buy everybody a cow, get all the children into school, sign everyone up for health insurance, build up businesses, train people, improve nutrition, you would be spending a million dollars on an incredibly complex system, including engineers surveying houses and people doing business training and nutrition training. And you probably wouldn't get anything like the impacts, and certainly not as quickly as you get for $100,000 of just giving cash to that same community and letting them do it themselves. So can you walk me through your program in Maryland County, Liberia, a rural, extremely poor part of Liberia? How does your program work and what results have you seen thus far? So Maryland County, Liberia is one of our most challenging areas in which to work because it's an area which during the rainy season takes you three and a half days on foot to access. It's one of the poorest parts of one of the poorest countries in the world. So over 80% of its residents live below a dollar a day. And we've launched a three-year basic income program in Maryland County, which aims to bring every adult above the extreme poverty line. It's an opportunity for people to actually adopt through Give Directly. You can fund an individual family. You can get together with friends and support an individual village. These are people who are going to receive $34 a month, every month, over three years. And we see all the same improvements that we see in many of these other contexts. We see people sending children to school because although education is theoretically free. In practice, unless you have some money for uniforms and school books, you won't be allowed into the school. You see people putting money together to create a savings groups. You see people repairing their houses. You see an eruption of small businesses and small businesses that can range from just getting a bit more fertilizer and seed for a new bit of farming right the way through to a small shop. And all of this is generating economic activity, as I say, for the surrounding area. Yeah, I mean, one of the nice things about Give Directly is you can go straight onto our website and you can click on a particular village and you can go to something called GD Live, which gives you these accounts. So while I'm talking to you, I've just got a couple of messages on my phone saying, so here's a lady called Noras, who's 37 years old. Sometimes she doesn't have money because of my children's school fees. When I've sold my produce, the market and paid their fees. The money that's left is not enough to buy food that will last as long. After two or three days, the food is finished. And she then goes on to explain how Give Directly allows that to be transformed, how she can get food on the table and get the children into school. So I think the important thing to understand about cash, what makes it so powerful, is that we often think about the extreme poor in silos. It's very common to say, here's a health program, here's an education program, here's a nutrition program. And we pretend that these are separate groups of people, but they're actually the same people. <laughs> who are receiving the health intervention, the education intervention, nutrition intervention, often incredibly inefficiently with no coordination between these programs. Whereas simply giving them the cash not only gives them the dignity, the agency, it allows them to address their own health needs, their own education needs, their own nutrition needs far more efficiently than an outsider is able to do. 
So you referenced this earlier, but we are seeing an increased adoption over the last several years of cash transfers in emergency humanitarian situations. Like I know, for example, that the World Food Program has been running cash programs for for quite a while now, but you're seeing it less commonly adopted in the global development space. Like USAID, you know, for all its programs doesn't seem to run very many big or high profile universal basic income projects. And I know you used to be the Secretary of State for International Development in the UK, running what we used to know as DFID. And it also doesn't seem like there is a huge number of programs by these major international development agencies to do what you do now as a private charity. Why is that? And what can be done to kind of overcome what you identified earlier as a psychological barrier to increase the prevalence of UBI and cash transfer programs by the agency developments themselves? Yes, I think one thing is to not focus too much on universal basic income because universal basic income can be very challenging for a policymaker because it implies that you're giving income every month forever. So we're trying also to communicate the extraordinary benefit that can come from a one-time transfer. I talked about the study in Uganda where $350 given 12 years ago still has a measurable impact 12 years later. So explaining to people that actually cash delivered in the right way can have a significant impact on helping people to emerge from poverty and doesn't simply require a continual commitment of year in, year out. I think the second thing is to help people understand how much traditional development has failed, help them to understand that we spent $17 billion, for example, in Malawi over the last 15 years as an international development community, and the poverty rate has hardly moved at all. Still about 70% of the population in Malawi are in extreme poverty. Delivering, let's say, $3 billion, so a fifth of that or less in cash, would have a very significant impact, we believe, on the poverty rate in that country. And we're living in a world in which there are fewer resources, there's less money to go around. Therefore, I think we should be more confident about pushing forward with solutions which are more efficient and which can be measured and tracked. I'd say to Congress people or senators, one of the great advantages of this is that you can actually, because the money arrives on someone's phone, it doesn't get gobbled up by the government, and you can track how they spend the money on the phone, you can get a much clearer sense of what you're buying with your money. I mean, that's the argument. It's compelling. And as you noted, there's been a number of like social science research studies demonstrating its impact and its utility, yet we haven't sort of gotten there as a global development community. I think one problem is that there's a vanity to international development. We like feeling that we've got some brilliant idea We don't like just giving people money. I notice this sometimes, sadly, with very wealthy philanthropists. They will sometimes say, I don't want to feel that all I have to contribute is my money. I want to contribute my brains and my passion. And, you know, I've set up a great business. and Maybe I can put my business acumen to transforming people's lives. That's one sort of psychological set. Another psychological set are people who want to believe that they suddenly found something really cool. You know, if only we give everybody chickens or if only we design a water pump, which is also a children's play area, 
they want to show off about some fashionable, exciting, new, shiny object. And cash isn't like that. Cash is a very humbling thing. It's difficult to say to someone, if you were a major philanthropist, and you say, I'm doing a major program in Malawi or Liberia, and someone says, aha, what are you doing? And you say, well, I'm, I'm just giving people cash. You might feel embarrassed. You might feel that your friends think, you know, what on earth are you doing? That maybe psychologically you feel you're like a sort of lazy uncle or aunt who can't be bothered to buy a present at the holiday season and just sends a check to the child instead. So it takes a lot of effort to explain to people that the very most helpful thing you can do if you put your own ego aside and all you really care about is transforming the life of someone in extreme poverty, the most reliable, replicable, scalable, welcome thing you can possibly do is to give them the cash so that they can solve their own needs in the way that they wish to. I mean, you're a former politician. Are there any political barriers that you see that is preventing government development agencies from more wholeheartedly adopting this approach? I think it's the psychological because I think in the end, politicians need to explain to voters. And voters have been told for, you know, 50 years, don't give someone a fish, teach them how to fish. And cash sounds like an enormous fish giving program. And it's difficult explaining that for the extreme poor, the problem usually isn't that they don't know how to fish. They normally do know how to fish. They just don't have the money to buy the fishing boat. And it's getting that across to people that what's holding back people in Africa is not lack of knowledge. I mean, there's something very patronizing about the way that voters and politicians and the development industry thinks about the extreme poor. We assume that they're somehow held back by their lack of knowledge. And therefore, we spend a lot of money on doing something called capacity building. But often what's holding people back is very straightforward. It's simply the fact that they are very poor. They just don't have money. And we underestimate how much difference it makes in our own lives to have money. We also find it difficult to imagine what it's like to be in extreme poverty. We imagine that giving cash to someone in Liberia or giving cash to someone in Malawi is like giving cash to someone in poverty in the United States or Europe. It isn't. These people in extreme poverty in a village in Africa lack almost everything. The cash changes their life almost overnight. It's their first access often to electricity, to healthcare, to education, to shelter, to any form of assets or income. It's genuinely life transforming. But these things are difficult to explain unless you can get people into the field. Rory, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, 
you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>